0: Hi, in today's episode of Jack of All Knowledge, I'm speaking to one of my dream guests, Ajay Shah. Ajay is currently a researcher at XKDR Forum. Previously, he has been a professor at IGIDR and NIFPFP. He has extensive work on economic regulation, state capacity, and governance. He is also famously known for his book, The Art and Science of Economic Policy. Ajay and I spoke about various things. We spoke about governance, state capacity, how to develop better institutions, how to tweak our governance policies to produce better outcomes, what are better outcomes, and much more. I thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much Ajay for doing this. This is um, a dream come true in many senses of the word because um, the past couple of years I have read a lot of your work, um, heard to a lot of your podcasts and I think um, in terms of like my dream guests, like you were one of them. So I'm very happy that we we're able to do this.
1: I'm very grateful to be here.
0: Uh, Ajay, so I want to start with understanding some bits of your personal life. You were um, an assistant professor at IGIDR for five years, a professor at NIPF for 13 years. So I want to understand as a professor, what was your idea in the sense when you used to approach teaching and when you used to go to classrooms, did you approach teaching with a way of, okay, there are some cardinal ideas and a philosophy that I need to communicate to these students? Or would you treat teaching as a hands-off approach in terms of, okay, I only need to communicate and disseminate the information to these students.
1: You're straight away hitting a raw nerve. Uh, This is something that has made much misery for me. Okay, so let me go through the pieces. The first is that I love to teach and uh, it is really a big part of the dream that, you know, can one... Uh, diffuse knowledge can one help bring up uh, young people better. It is really something very important to me. I have actually done very little formal classroom teaching. The reason is that I tried a couple of times and uh, I was very disillusioned because I feel all around us in this world today, we have too many students who are just looking for credentials, are looking for grades, are looking to make a resume and actually don't care about the knowledge. And when a person approaches a course like that, then it fundamentally contaminates the project of learning. So I have tried a couple of times. I've taught a few courses, but really it did not work. And it was not what made sense to me. I have actually evolved over the years into a somewhat different point of view. I'm not even convinced in theory that... With students with high levels of intrinsic motivation and a true thirst for knowledge, that the industrialized classroom is a very appropriate format or a mechanism for learning. I've become more skeptical. I don't think that's how learning happens. Uh, I think that what you need in learning is a mixture of the very old and the very new. The very new is the uh, revolutions like YouTube and lectures or Coursera and lectures. And some very sophisticated software systems, uh, DataCamp.com comes to mind. Uh, DataCamp.com is like a software programming teaching thing, which is very very detailed and intrusive, and asks you to write some code. And when you write the code, it will then run that code, and it will show you the mistakes, things like that. So it's like a hands-on tutor doing things that can be assessed using uh, multiple-choice questions, okay. and. That's a small part of the world, but it is a part of the world. And the very old idea is just apprenticeships. I think what works is apprenticeship, that people work with each other and they learn. And so in the bulk of my life, the teaching that I have done has actually been by working closely with many people. Uh, The typical recipe for me is that people start out as an assistant and they're doing implementation work on a project and the best of them grow to becoming co-authors and grow to becoming uh, thinkers and researchers in their own right. And I find that's a format in which genuine transmission of knowledge happens and I have become a great skeptic about the machine, the machine of classes and exams and admissions and credentials and the reputation of the university. And all that. I I just don't believe it
0: anymore. But in terms of um, going back to what you started your answer with, in terms of saying that you tried teaching a couple of times, but you think that a lot of these students in any university, in any composition, don't really want to learn as much as they want to say, establish credentials, etc. So
1: So there is a machine that they want to know what is the kind of problem that will come in the exam. Then mm -hmm. they want to know how to solve the problem. They don't want to go deeper. They don't want to understand... Why is this interesting and important? How did we get here in the journey of knowledge? What are the limitations of this kind of analytical approach? What are the open questions, which are then your future research possibilities, which is my conception of a complete body of knowledge. Um, In the Indian uh, machine of school and college, we are being encouraged to blindly see some formulas and apply them. And there's a lot of rote memorization and... You're supposed to recognize a pattern that this type of question is to be answered in this type of way. And that is doing tremendous disservice to everybody concerned because life is not like that. Life is an open book exam and you never get the precise nature of that 12th standard problem or Mm -hmm. the undergraduate college exam problems. Life is complex. Life is interdisciplinary. Life demands polymathic skills from us. We have to know many, many things. It's about curiosity. It's about problem solving. It's about recognizing an opportunity in a situation that, you know, I can think about this in a novel way and I can obtain transformative change on this. Maybe this question is not the right question that should be asked. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that really being a good thinker, problem solver, builder is a very different skill. It is about curiosity. It's about open-ended a freewheeling nature of risk-taking. Mm-hmm. It's about being able to synthesize many different pieces of knowledge. And so I am just a bit checked out of the academic enterprise in the machinery mm-hmm. of course, degree, credentials. I hate rankings of universities. I hate placement cells inside universities. I hate the whole industrialization of this where people get a tunnel vision and start thinking about what package they're getting, then why bother? I mean, I, I'd like to shut down a lot of this kind of thing. And, you know, like, imagine you just get an IIT JEE exam and show that rank and go to an employer. Why are you bothering with this charad for four years? Yes.
0: But um, the natural question that comes to my mind is, um, even in most decent classrooms, do you think, like, the people... I think, in my opinion, a couple of people are always there who are interested, who kind of make the cut, for example, for your threshold. So, for you, do do you think that that also does not make the whole of the classroom experience decent enough for you to teach? Or do you just want a cohort that in and of itself, like, the whole of it is... No, I'm not
1: hankering after that cohort. Uh, As you know well, whether you take my life at IJDR or NIPFP or XKDR forum, uh, the those people that have the curiosity and the intrinsic motivation would be better served being here in XKDR4. This is a living, breathing life of knowledge and curiosity and understanding the world and engaging with the world and gaining richness and just doing something that builds a person like you to a different level altogether. So I think that this is better than attending Harvard College.
0: And why would you say that?
1: Because the experience of being inside the research process and of sitting in complex conversations and research debates, facing the world in its richness and complexity, starting to get your hands dirty on doing things, making mistakes, having feedback loops, having that curiosity and interest that I'm here to do X. Then along the way, you'd pick up all those skills. So I'm opposed to the word skills. You can learn anything. So... Uh, I had never learned stochastic calculus at college. When the day came and I was curious about financial derivatives, I taught myself stochastic calculus. So when that moment is there where you feel the hunger to know something, you will actually move mountains and learn all the skills. And, you know, there are books, there are video lectures, there is all kinds of things through which self-learning can happen. And in a research group like this, in a lab like this, you have access to other people to turn to and talk to. So, the transmission of knowledge happens much better in an environment like this. But most importantly, then it's not formulaic. You're not shown a set piece battle that if you face this kind, this question type, then you will apply ethos lemma like this and you will get this answer and then you'll get 100 on 100 in an exam. That whole industrialization of the journey of human knowledge is, is just anathema me today and i have just stopped believing that it's an efficient thing for anybody it's not good for the teacher it's not good for the student it's a relic of the industrial revolution i think that at the time of the industrial revolution we wanted to send parents to uh, sweat to do sweatshop labor in factories and then there was a problem with daycare so we invented schools where we herded uh, age sorted children together to sit in a class we wanted them to be beaten into shape by being disciplined so that they'll become industrial workers tomorrow. So we created discipline in schools. And then for a very long time, that's all there was. Um, Can I digress? Uh, Are you comfortable with a long-winded podcast episode way beyond anything you'd ever thought? Let's look back at what people with the means did at the time of the Industrial Revolution, when the early schools were coming, the concept for the elites was not school. The concept for the elites was a tutor. So what would happen is a family would recruit a tutor. And the tutor was supposed to be broad-minded and knowledgeable in many, many fields and would talk to the kids every day, would take the kids out for visits, for travels. Like children from the UK would go spend a year traveling the European continent chaperoned by the tutor and everywhere the tutor would have conversations with them about the places that they would go to. That was considered the real ed- education in the hands of mm-hmm. the people who could afford it. Of course, very few people could afford it. Let's think about universities. The universities were very small uh, affairs for a long, long time. Even today in Oxford, there is a tutor concept, which mm-hmm. I think is a great concept. It's not a course concept. It's a tutor concept. I think it makes so much more sense. Then came the industrialization of universities where somehow we got this idea that almost everybody should go to college. Bracket. I don't think it makes sense. Actually, you know, reading, writing, multiplying is a sufficient skill for most jobs, for most life careers. You don't need to attend college. Yeah. So we somehow did this industrialization and grade inflation. Now, if you don't have an undergraduate degree, you're nothing. Or if you don't have a master's degree, you're nothing. And I just don't think all these things make sense. We've, we've lost sight of means and ends. So... In my dream world, you know, you do some reading and writing, ideally at with homeschooling and tutors rather than schools and colleges. And for most people, that suffices. You want to go into the world of business and do normal things. It actually suffices. For a few knowledge seekers, I would dream of a world of apprenticeship around researchers. And then, of course, you get the next level problem that too many of the researchers are actually no longer being driven by hunger and curiosity and imagination and are in a rat race of getting journal pumps and that has its own adverse consequences. So I'm just a skeptic about a lot of the ways in which we organize this world.
0: I agree with you. Like I have two points to make after what you said. Number one about just the whole skepticism with classroom learning. I agree with you on many fronts in terms of how Because it's essentially a broadcast in which one individual is supposed to somehow teach so many of these individuals who have different and varying learning capacities and make them achieve a singular educational goal, which is almost impossible to do. But because we've maintained the system, we've built the system, we all kind of have turned the blind eye. Whatever is happening, let it happen. People have grades, they graduate and everything. So what I used to do for myself, I just graduated a couple of months back. Uh, What I used to do for my degrees that I would sit in class but whatever real conversation that I wanted to have, I would have outside of my classroom with my professor because then I knew that at least the whole attention of my professor is with me. And also after a point in time, you realize that in class there is only so much information that can be disseminated because you might ask something that is a really good question because that might be out of context for a lot of other people. So I understand in terms of how just the fact that the scale of the classroom becomes more mostly means that like it's an inversely proportional relationship in terms of quality and quantity. Yeah. Um, and secondly, in terms of um, like the concept of tutor that you said, um, I think it's also really important that you don't look at education in general or even, for example, if you're studying one degree I've done very different degrees consecutively my undergrad was in physics and my the other degree was in law but I think one thing that I really tried to do in both of these degrees was that okay if I'm studying physics but I also have to study other things not just academically but in terms of wow, the way I think as well and I think this is where what you say like you read write a lot of those skills that mostly you won't get from college Skills that you can only develop by a curiosity by yourself. I think that's really important. The next question I want to ask you. here. Yeah.
1: Um, and let's not fetishize curiosity. The world needs a lot of normal people. Hmm. And for normal people, I just feel, you know, read, write, go into the world of business. That's all. Why are we getting into this whole drama that I attended IIM, am Amdawad? Why bother? Okay, just go into the world. That every year you spend on the job will actually give you more knowledge than attending some, you know, dull uh, B-grade, C-grade educational system. So that credentialism is is just a waste that we are so busy uh, searching for status markers that in the process we've lost sight of means and ends. Uh, You said correctly that people may not be at the same level and I want to, I agree completely and I want to bring into this question the issue of age sorting. So we normally sort children by age and then we want everybody in the sixth standard to be offered homogeneous age and modern knowledge will tell you that that is a wildly wrong thing to do. Different people blossom differently in different dimensions of their life at different rates. So again, I don't want to imply that anybody is smart and anybody is dumb. Mm. In fact, by doing age sorting, we do huge disservice to the late bloomers because the late bloomers are being told all their life that you are stupid, which is just so wrong. And there is no one thing called IQ. We have many, many, many dimensions of ourselves and all those dimensions unfold at different stages so you may be socially autistic at 25 and you may become a good empathetic person at 35 okay all these things happen to all of us and so i really object to age sorting in this attempt at homogenization and that's the first thing that is so badly wrong with this industrial machinery of education if i may just go on there are two others the second thing that is wrong with uh, the industrial machine of education is this conception of testing. Um, we want testing and more and more we want objective testing. Hmm. Okay, Now, it is actually very hard and almost meaningless to measure a human being's knowledge in these crude ways. That If I want to lock you in, an, in a hall for two hours and measure your knowledge, it's actually an impossible quest. Because the moment you start going down that direction, then you start thinking in a regimented way that I'll give you a word problem, you'll turn it into a quadratic equation, you can solve it, yes, no. And we measure that narrow dimension. But knowledge is actually infinitely complex. Knowledge is full of grace. Knowledge is about complex connectivity. And you. I'm happy to hear you have studied physics. As you know, I have been a STEM student for most of my life. Uh, I'm that boring Indian child, NTS scholar and <laughs> IIT uh, student and all that. But exams are so stultifying in terms of narrowing the imagination because then you're studying for the exam. You stop studying the subject. You stop dreaming of that knowledge. Mm. You are dreaming of predicting what question types will appear in the exam and getting that narrowness of the knowledge. Uh, there is a economist called Charles Goodhart. Goodhart invented something called Goodhart's Law which says that once you start using a measure for a certain application, it stops meaning what you thought it once was. So you could go to a band of 15-year-old children in 1500 AD and you could run some math problems on them and that would be pretty descriptive. It would really inform you about their state of knowledge. But once you started saying to them that, you know, your future is going to depend on this, then they'll say to you, yeah, sure, I'll mug up, I'll study, I'll get through that exam and suddenly it means nothing. Hmm. Because that knowledge evaporates. All of us know. Okay, We study for exams and a few days later, it's all gone. What stays is only what came from the heart, what what touched your heart. okay? If you had those right life experiences, then Schrodinger's equation means something fundamental to you hmm. and special to you. But if you did it for a course, you just solved some problems and it's you regurgitated about. it, you threw it away. Okay, so... The Black and Scholes equation means something deep and beautiful to me. I can prove it in three different ways. I love that little equation. It means a lot to me. I understand it deeply. I can apply it in novel contexts. I have written papers about doing cool original things using it. But if I had done it in a mechanical examistic way, I would have just memorized the equation, learned how to differentiate it in a few ways, one in some exams. I mean, hey, I'm an IIT guy, I can pass any exam, I can win in any exam and then it would evaporate later and now that I'm 57 years old, I look back and say, why bother with all that rubbish? It's just what a waste of life.
0: That's true. Um, I have, I thought, I, I think about education quite a lot um, and I've written quite a bit, like five, six articles only on education and I think that this whole idea of, I want to go back to what you said in terms of Curiosity is fetishized. Like, Can you speak more about what do you mean by that? Uh,
1: the whole world talks a little too much about intellectual power. Actually, a lot of life designs and life roles in this planet don't require it. And it seems harsh and rude, but it's the truth. I mean, just step out and look, up this, look out of this window. Most people lead lives of quiet desperation. They just keep on doing the same thing over and over. Okay, The typical practitioner does the same task hundreds of times and they get a little bit better at doing that task, but there's not a lot of curiosity. That's just implementation and execution. Most people in the world do implementation execution and they don't need a whole lot by way of curiosity and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. There are 7 billion people in this world and most of them do simple things and don't need to do complicated research things. So, you know, being at the frontiers of knowledge and discovery is important for leadership roles, is important for making the world a better place. But it will be the preserve of a small elite. It will not be a mass thing. So once again, we should not think that everybody is going to partake Mm. of the fruit of knowledge. Most people are not. Most people are going to do regular things. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah, I think what you said in terms of we should not make en masse people guilty about the fact that they are not curious. Correct.
1: Or similarly, to flip it upside down that on one hand, we want everybody to attend college. And then you start thinking But college should do something more than mere boring industrialization. It can't be because most people are not going to make sense of deeply complex and intellectual journeys. So, for example, all over the European continent, for a long time, people would go to so-called grammar school and stop. You wouldn't attend college. The idea that everybody attends college is a very Mm -hmm. modern syndrome I think there's a bit of a bait and switch going on. We're telling parents that your kids get through to college, they'll become middle class, they'll get a shot of a good life. You know, I, I feel we should just disrespect all these messages. If your kids know to read and write, they're ready to work in a normal firm. Okay, Most firms don't need more than reading and writing. And then you need a whole dose of charm and personal skills and uh, character and uh, hunger and you'll get at practical, practitioner lives. Most civil servants don't need any knowledge.
0: Okay? And so on. You would make that statement. Why? Yeah,
1: you need millions of civil servants. Millions of civil servants don't have to be thinkers. Okay? You need some thinkers and dreamers who will establish complex policy frameworks. The beat policeman does not need deep levels of knowledge. He just needs to be a good human being and know how to read and write.
0: Fair enough. Um, just going back to what I was saying in terms of when um, I think about education, I think I there were a couple of themes of what how I would say classroom play out. And I think the number of what you said was how people just care about the measurement of their intellect, which is Marx. And there's um, this is one piece that I've written titled Much Ado About Marx. Because I think after a point in time, I remember being frustrated with why is everyone around me so fetishized? Like, why, why is everyone fetishizing Marx so much? Why is so concerned about Marx? Because I have seen putting minimal effort and getting graded way more than I should have. I've seen putting all efforts and still getting not graded. So after a point in time, I let go of that metric and I tried to do uh, education in a way where I would be like, okay, this is my task. This is the course and curriculum. So I will do it for the sake of it because I need to pass. But within that, I will select a couple of topics which I will study wholeheartedly because they are of interest to me. But I think that education as a problem is something that like which we will talk about later in terms of yeah yeah. Uh,
1: can i just continue on the problem of marks there is a great indian disease around uh, stem subjects okay so science technology engineering medicine is that what it is okay the hard part of knowledge is called stem and again i speak as a person that is passionate about science, about mathematics, about statistics, about computer science. I am as STEM as you can get. But there is an Indian madness around STEM that we think that this is objective. So I can Mm. run an objective exam to test your ability to solve physics problems. Mm. Whereas I can't run an objective exam to measure your sociology knowledge. Mm. So somehow physics is a superior subject Mm. and sociology is not. Mm. Okay, we get into this whole delusion that... I can measure the student's knowledge of being able to solve physics problems. Bracket, that's not the same as knowing physics deeply, but fine, I'll let that go. We can measure the teacher's performance in delivering on a standardized curriculum and a standardized exam, right? So imagine I have 10 teachers and they're all teaching students which are randomly allocated to them and teacher number C gets a bigger fraction of them getting through the IIT J.E., then probably teacher number C is doing a better job of teaching physics than the other teachers. So we can objectively assess the achievement of certain aspects of that knowledge by the student. And we can objectively assess the work of the teacher in the transmission of that knowledge. I agree with all these propositions. But not even for physics does that actually suffice in deeply getting to physics. Okay, To worship physics is a different level of knowledge and perspective and character and imagination and dreams and philosophy than being able to solve physics problems. There is more to knowing physics than being able to solve the IIT, JE physics problems. And uh, it in no way makes sociology less good or less important. So in fact, I will flip this upside down. Knowledge of non-STEM subjects is even harder than knowledge of STEM subjects.
0: Why would you say that?
1: Because... It is easy for a student to track herself, to be able to see, am I able to solve the problems at the back of Resnick and Halliday? Then I think I figured out this chapter. Whereas a student who finishes chapter 4 of a sociology book is much more in the fog. Have I actually understood this? Have I understood this deeply? Am I being superficial? It is so hard to Mm self-assess. So you'll make mistakes to read a humanities book, which appears to be just words of English that are strung together. Mm -hmm. But they can express deep, rich and complex ideas. How do you assess yourself? Have I understood it? Am I regurgitating it? Am I just imitating the words and sentences? Have I understood it? It is harder for a reader and a student to self-assess their own humanities knowledge. It is easier for a student to self-assess their STEM knowledge. Same for the teacher. It is harder for a teacher to teach humanities knowledge. It is easier for a teacher to teach STEM knowledge. It is harder for management to judge a teacher of humanities. It is easier for management to judge a teacher of STEM. Okay. So I actually think upside down. I think STEM is easy. I think humanities and social sciences is hard. To actually know some philosophy is very hard. To actually know economics is very hard, except that the world has corrupted, corroded the heart of economics and tried to turn it into a STEM subject where we solve problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that gets to like 20% of economics. Most of economics is deep. And we've just like pushed it aside. We try to ignore it and it's not there. It's the elephant in the room. We try to not talk about it. We just try to industrialize students through this easy thing that there are some textbooks, there are some problems, there are some problem types. You do the problems at the back of a chapter, you have understood the chapter, you take an exam, we judge the teacher, that whole machinery of education is up and running in a STEM imitation. But... Social science and humanities knowledge is actually very deep. It's very, very hard to know social sciences for the reasons that I have ascribed. So I actually say that STEM is easy and it is non-STEM knowledge that is hard.
0: And if what you're saying in terms of what the problem is, is the regimentation of all of that curriculum yeah. and the industrialization of education. Yeah. So how would you have it if you, in your ideal world?
1: I already told you everything. I would have uh, homeschooled children learning to read and write and then show up in labs i think the lab is the right unit of education show up as an apprentice to a lab and again i would not have age sorting i wouldn't say at age 17 you join a lab it's up to you different people mature differently okay we we know so many instances in history where 12 year olds 14 year olds have actually been fully conscious and sentient participants of sophisticated knowledge projects so uh, you know i used to be at uh, indira gandhi institute which is blessed with a very good uh, student-teacher ratio. But at that number of students, so imagine you have 30 faculty members. Okay, So my dream would be that 30 faculty members organize themselves as uh, 10 labs. So there are three people per lab. There are three uh, researchers per lab. And uh, each lab has about 10 students. Okay, So you have about 100 students on campus, which is comparable to where they are today. And all the 100 students are getting an apprentice experience. That they come, they participate in discovery. They come, they participate in knowledge production. Mm. And there are no exams and there are no marks. Mm. And it's a journey of making knowledge. And it is infuriating and frustrating and difficult at first. You'll gradually find the groove and you'll get better as you go. And one would reproduce today's Indira Gandhi Institute with about 100 students, with about 30 faculty members. But do a whole lot more rather than... Mm. The motions of courses and exams and grades and all
0: that—that's interesting to think about. So you would basically have instead of one university, like ten XKDR centers, where all of this information is happening I
1: mean, or XKDR forum is a is a lab, okay? In in a different country, this would just have been a lab in a university, but because universities in India have many problems, this kind of thing is freestanding. But in concept, it's a lab, okay? What is a lab? A lab is a place where there are a couple of uh, older academics involved in the business of knowledge production and a bunch of young people work for them and the lab has very high levels of autonomy in figuring out what it does. It doesn't take instructions. Okay, that's the concept of a lab that it's not a top-down management where you get instructions on what to research. Hmm. The lab chooses for itself what it will work on.
0: Hmm. All right. I understand. Um, next thing I want to talk about is in terms of um, your education and I am mostly interested in your education after IIT. So, you st- like were at usc for 5 years i'm, I'm assuming it's an integrated phd or just an PhD. Just, phd just phd so i want to understand um what was what were you thinking in those 5 years what was the cultural and intellectual shift that was happening in your mind and how much of you right now is a product of those 5 years um in terms of influences that even started then that have continued till now
1: it was less dramatic than I had thought and I had hoped okay so uh, at the early stages it was more like coursework and uh, there were revolutions for me of learning microeconomics and macroeconomics and probability and statistics these were subjects I did not have exposure to so when I was at IIT Bombay we I was in, uh, in aeronautical engineering so I basically had essentially zero exposure to probability and statistics so As part of the economics PhD program, I discovered microeconomics and macroeconomics and probability and statistics. And I absolutely loved these subjects. It was life transforming. I'd never seen these subjects well before. I had seen um, microeconomics and macroeconomics more superficially before. But for me personally, I got a chance to do these subjects for the first time. So I'd been an engineering student and never got anything of this nature Earlier, So when I got these subjects, it was really life-transforming for me. The rest of the PhD journey was not so great. Uh, I got exposure to the machine of trying to write some papers and get them published in a journal. But it is a deeply dissatisfying process in its own right. And it was not great. It was okay. So I say the later part of my PhD of... uh, Doing a PhD thesis of doing original research was not so good. I worked for some years at the RAND Corporation uh, alongside my PhD as an assistant uh, to a man named Lee Lillard. He's no more. That worked very well for me because that was an apprenticeship where I learned a lot. So Lee Lillard was running a research program. I was his junior slave and that worked very well. So, you know,
0: every apprentice
1: needs to find a good master and I found my good master in Lee Lillard and he uh, gave me chunks of work out of the research program that he was dreaming of and I was a loyal and faithful implementer and I learned a lot by doing that. I also learned by osmosis of being around RAND Corporation. Mm -hmm. It got me thinking about research institutions and I said a moment ago that there are reasons why universities and a lot of other organizations in India work quite poorly. RAND Corporation was my first exposure to a nice, well-functioning research organization. It got me thinking about the principles of how do you organize these Mm. uh, temples of knowledge production and in some ways that knowledge has stayed with me till today. So out of my PhD process, what did I get? I think I got to drink deeply of subjects that I'd never seen before, namely Mm. probability statistics, microeconomics and macroeconomics. And that worked great for me. I got truly drunk on each of these subjects. I went mad reading and thinking and understanding and enjoying those subjects. I got my apprentice experience with a great master, with Professor Lee Lillard, who was at the RAND Corporation. And I got to see the RAND Corporation institutionally. I started understanding how these uh, temples of knowledge production work. So this was what I got from the PhD process. I also got some exposure to the climbing the corporate ladder version of writing research papers which happens a lot in academics and it did not excite me then and it never excited what
0: me. What
1: that mean? Uh, For most people in the world of academics, you're on a machine, you're supposed to write journal papers, you play credentialism, you're supposed to go to famous journals, you're supposed to go to top journals and your life and career depends on being in top journals. Once you are in published in the top journals, you start getting jobs in the top universities. <laughs> So it's just a boring status-seeking journey of going to top. And it stops being and thinking about the world. So just like a good Indian child cracks 12 standard exams by understanding what is that question type. And for this question type, this is the way in which you write the answer and then you get full marks. Most people in that climbing the corporate ladder version of the research world are doing that. It is a game of understanding. This journal will take this kind of paper. Why don't I write this type of paper which is this kind of message and is packaged thusly? And then this editor and this referee will like it. And mm. of course, then you there's also a dose of schmoozing with the editors and the referees. That's what most academic research looks like. And I found it unedifying and I find it unedifying. It was my privilege and luxury and most best decision in life to move back to India. And then I kind of started from scratch and actually learned how to be a researcher by myself in India because I also turned my lens and started thinking I'm not worrying about the journals. I want to learn what is happening in this world. I want to understand this world. I am here in India. I'm authentically, deeply grounded here in India. I want to understand the world around me and that is my research journey. And that gave me the motivation to wake up and do research well as opposed to, you know, trying to, crack some top journals Mm. and uh, that process of curiosity has been the energy and excitement of my life ever since and i'm happy and pleased to say that i have not run out of that zeal at all i wake up in the morning today i think of research ideas because to look at the world is real and exhilarating i'm not climbing a corporate ladder okay if i had got those five ten pubs in top academic journals then at the end of that i'd be saying now what Mm. okay those people get that been there done that notion and I don't ever get that because that was not the objective so I don't define myself by the journal pubs I define myself by my understanding of this country and I take interest in understanding India and I do all kinds of unorthodox and non-traditional things because actually once you say to yourself that this is my purpose then the pathways to that start bubbling up and they are all eclectic and It's not a beaten path because most people have not done this. And I just keep on uh, coming up with unusual, some will say maverick, most will say crazy ideas for what to do in terms of thinking and figuring out and understanding and building knowledge and and diffusing knowledge and disseminating knowledge. But I find this exciting and real. I, I feel real as opposed to that whole credentialism where I'm trying to get some pubs to impress somebody else. I'm not doing this for anybody else.
0: I'm doing this for me. Fair enough. Um, In terms of PhD as a program, and a lot has happened and developed since the time you did a PhD in terms yes. of information dissemination. Yes. So do you think, I have like, two questions. Number one, overall, like whole, do you think PhDs are underrated or overrated? And secondly, is whatever were the benefits that you took out of PhD, do you think people can find them elsewhere and not have to do it?
1: It's a good question and it's harder than meets the eye. Uh, Unfortunately, it's also layered with PhD in India or PhD abroad. So unfortunately, these things are mixed up. Um, I think the most important thing is for the apprentice to find a good master. When you have a good master and that master is engaged in a journey of knowledge, it's a good experience. So I wouldn't worry about the name of the university. I would worry about the name of the master that... Uh, The PhD process works well when you get that experience of doing research with a good master and building good knowledge and, you know, not the game of chasing the journals, but of understanding the world. Uh, At the right age, the PhD is a good place to get a couple of years without much responsibilities and an opportunity to immerse in the world of knowledge. And there are other ways to do it. So, you know, for the people who have been with me in my labs at IJDR or NIPFP or here in XKDR forum there is that same learning experience that sense of time and curiosity of building knowledge uh, without uh, being bugged by many practical considerations but there is a credentialism issue the world wants a PhD and the world sometimes wants a foreign PhD Mm -hmm. so then it depends on sort of your life design what will you do what is your long-term plan? How confident are you? I think it turns on the word confidence. So weak people want more credentials. Okay. So the weaker the person, the more desperately they want to hide behind credentials. Whereas if in your heart, actually, you know that you are cool, then you will shine through and you need credentials less. So uh, the extent to which people want to hide their insecurities and lack of knowledge behind credentials does tend to become a factor. And so weak people want more credentials. Strong people need less credentials because you're going to get by. You're going to be cool and be innovative and build amazing things. And there are foolish organizations that will choke certain kinds of recruitment saying you don't have the right credentials. So by the way, I know of organizations in India who say that we will not even interview a person if the PhD is not from abroad, which I think is mean and cruel and wrong because there are are all kinds of amazing capabilities everywhere and you should look at the person. You should not look at the credentials so unfortunately the world is trapped for many people credentials are everything and they don't want to apply their mind to looking at a person and judging that person but that works to a certain superficial extent
0: i want to talk a little bit about um, the xkdr forum in terms of the first question i would want to ask is where did the seed of you thinking that maybe something like this should exist come from and secondly Um, what is the present organizational structure in terms of... We spoke about how you think about how do you design an organization in order to optimize certain things, which I would assume are things like real educational prowess in terms of chasing intellectual goals that you prioritize. So can you tell me about, A, how did you start? Because you also have a very long history of being in these labs, which I would assume that you were happy being there uh, because you were doing something that you wanted. So why shift from that, start something...
1: So I already described my start at the RAND Corporation. I was a junior flunky. I was an apprentice at RAND Corporation. I don't want to overstate my rank there, but I was a curious observer. Uh, My heroes like Johnny von Neumann had been at RAND Corporation. So I understood that this was a very special and important organization in world history. And so I tried to apply myself to understanding the secret sauce of what is RAND and how it works. I watched how people talk to each other. I watched incentives, I watched power and these are the sources of organizations and capability. Then in India, uh, for a long time, Susan and I were at IJIDR and we had a bunch of PhD students. So effectively it became a little group. There was no external funding but we had our own PhD students and uh, it became a research group. People would meet every day, people would debate, we started getting that energy going. Um, Ila Patnaik was the key person who jumped me to the next level. Um, There was a period in my life after I finished at Ministry of Finance where one element of my life design was that uh, uh, in Delhi, there was a barista at Defence Colony that I liked a lot. So my life design was that I would sit at the third floor at the barista and I would write papers. And I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to do research and write papers. And Ila persuaded me that there was a path of fundraising and finding the money to actually build a group whereby this could be done on a bigger and better scale and I grumbled and I was dragged kicking and screaming because I was not exactly convinced that this is such a great idea but uh, she the one that had done something like this before at NCER and she said no this can be done I know it can be done I have done it and it will work better than sitting on the third floor at the defense colony barista. And so we did that. Eli and I started the macro and finance group at NIPFP. And for some time, that worked very well. And in similar fashion, Susan uh, scaled up from a few PhD students to a full lab at IGIDR with external funding. Uh, it uh, was called the finance research group at IGIDR, FRG. And it also worked very well and it had some remarkable achievements uh, to its credit. So these pieces were all there around that. Uh, there was the macro and finance group at NIPFP that was working good. There was a finance research group at IGIDR that was working good. Then the next leap was that these are government organizations and they come with a variety of frictions. And can one do better than that? And that was the invention of XKDR Forum. So the idea was that if you start from scratch and you build a nonprofit research organization, but under private management, without the limitations and restrictions of being in the fold of the government, then can you do it even better? And that was the theory of doing XKDR4. So we are in a struggle all the time on fundraising because uh, very few philanthropies in India seem to value knowledge production and the building of people as we do on an artisanal scale. But I feel we have tremendous bang for the buck that for limited resources, the quality of the work here is very high. The quality and quantity of the work here is very high and the way in which uh, people are growing here and uh, young people are becoming intellectually powerful here, I'm very pleased and proud of watching that delta of how every six months, every one year, every five years, I watch the people become better and that is great. So I believe that in the Indian journey, it's a story of building knowledge and building community and this is our best take at trying to do that in a small way. We are a tiny 15-man organization.
0: So, and how do you think about organization design? What are the values that you want to optimize for at the forum and how do you make sure that those are preserved?
1: Uh, different organizations need different designs. Okay, So, you need to establish some dreams of what that organization needs to be and then you would do an organization design that is fit for purpose. So, if you want to design a bank, it will be different. If you want to design a hedge fund, it will be different. So, uh, speaking like that, in this organization, the attempt is to support and encourage curiosity and criticism. So, it's good to keep power out of the room. It's good to support and encourage curiosity and dissent and disagreement. It's good to have rooms where conversations take place, where debates take place about research ideas. And everybody feels comfortable to disagree and criticize and people come up with ideas and then there is a process of different people coming up with ideas and arguing about them and debating them and criticizing them. And to me, that is the heart of how to do this properly. Uh, In the kind of things that we do, which is applied economics, there's a great deal of statistics and quantitative work and all that. We also try to cultivate the values of being uh, very efficient on those things. So... Uh, In doing uh, quantitative work with data, there's a large dose of knowledge of statistics and computer science. Comparable groups in this field tend to cut corners on their knowledge of data, their knowledge of methods and sources, their knowledge of statistics, and their knowledge of computer science, which I think is suboptimal, that you just end up limiting your imagination because the cost of implementing an idea is so high. So the idea should be that we built to ridiculous levels of productivity in translating a research conjecture into a practical living, breathing model or an implementation so that you are able to disregard the cost mm-hmm. of doing things. Okay. So when people are very weak in doing things with their own hands, then the idea of translating a conjecture into an implementation seems like a big hill. Oh my God, it'll take me a year to do this. And then you try fewer things, you innovate less, and then you suffer more from some cost fallacy that I've already spent a year doing this. How can I let it go? Whereas we waste a lot of work because when you had an idea, you tried something and it didn't particularly make sense. Very good. Admit it. Let's discuss with each other that, no, this is not fun. And you throw it away and then you move on to the next thing. So uh, there is a phrase in uh, the world of innovation policy, which I I take to heart and I consider very important. It's called an innovation funnel. So in the world of business, there's a phrase, the sales funnel, okay? So there's a large number of people where you do an early stage sales conversation Then some of them take interest. Some of them become hot leads. Some of them become sales, okay? That's the way it works in the business world. A similar philosophy applies in the world of research. First, you have to have an innovation engine where you invent many, many ideas. So at the level of throwing mad ideas on a whiteboard, We need the culture and the creativity of inventing many, many new things. And I'm proud to say that here in XKDR Forum, we invent at a ridiculous rate. We we invent more stuff here in a month than most big econ departments get in a year or multiple years. So we're able to come up with many, many interesting, cool ideas. Then we try to have very high levels of knowledge of data. We don't fumble and uh, flounder with making mistakes on what data means. A large amount of economics research in India is of low quality because people don't understand what that data is all about, what the data measures. And uh, sending things to journals and referees who are not in this country is unfortunately a bit corroding because the referees who are far away also dimly know India. Okay, NRIs don't know much about India because they've been away from age 20. They haven't figured out the richness and complexity of institutions and mechanisms about what happens in India. So we work hard on understanding data deeply so that we come up with a correct research design that is commensurate with a curiosity or a conjecture that is at hand. And then we try to have high levels of knowledge of computer science and statistics. We engage in tool building and so that we are able to rapidly play out many an idea. And we are triaging at every step. So you try to have highly productive research ideas at the early stages and then Some of them seem so good that you'll actually put shoulder behind it and try to turn it into a practical implementation. And then many of those will fail and that's okay. One is cold and comfortable saying throw it away. That yeah, this doesn't make sense. So you don't follow it up further. And then a few of them turn into gems. And that's the research philosophy that we try to build here. Everything I'm saying here overstates extent to which we are living this dream. This is a dream. We're building towards that. We ain't done. But... I'm describing to you the philosophy of what we aspire to be.
0: How do you attract talent here?
1: Folks like you show up the front door. That's what happens. So, uh, again, if you were were focused on credentialism, then this is probably not such a great thing to do. Because we are primarily focused on building knowledge and we don't worry about brand names. We have a certain amount of brand names swirling around us. But it's not the essence. We don't particularly care about brand names. On the side, we there are some brand names that have happened here. Uh, we primarily build knowledge. So there are people who are very clearly brand name oriented. Then this is not the right place for them. But then there is a kind of person who thinks deeply and would like to be in this world in a deeper way rather than climbing a corporate ladder. Mm. Then that's the kind of person that shows up the front door. Uh, the people who read the book... in. The art and science of economic policy, the people who read the blog, the people who stumble on our web page, the people who stumble on our YouTube channel, these are the kind of people that show up.
0: Fair enough. Um, I want to now discuss um, state capacity and your work on state capacity and your conversations and your writings on what basically the concept means, how it gets manifested and implemented in various forms. Firstly, of course, like I would just want to understand, I have a vague idea of what the term means, but I want to understand a little bit more deeply in terms of what does state capacity mean? I, I know it means what What are the things that or projects that a state can undertake to do whatever action that they want to do as the state, but what does it mean in its essence?
1: Uh, there is a more traditional conception of the word state capacity as is used by some mainstream figures in the West and it would run like this that uh, you decided to invade Mozambique are you able to successfully conquer Mozambique That is state capacity I don't want to discuss the political process that led up to a decision are you able to implement it correctly Okay. or you decided that we should vaccinate the entire population and at the time of the second wave in India the percentage of the population that was vaccinated was like one-tenth of the percentage of the population in Israel that was vaccinated That's state capacity. Both countries had a decision that we want to vaccinate the population. But Israel had half the population vaccinated at the time of the Indian second wave. And in India, 5% of the population was vaccinated at the time of the second wave. So that's state capacity. That Let's not discuss the decision. Let's discuss the implementation. That Are you able to translate a political objective into an implementation? That is... more traditional conception of state capacity it's interesting it's important okay so understand how things get done that you know the parliament chose to build an organization called SEBI and it had certain objectives for what SEBI should do so then does SEBI actually do that are you able to successfully deliver an organization that meets the goals of the founders who had some conception of what this organization should be and some law was drafted or did you end up somewhere else okay that is question of state capacity Um, i have shifted positions substantially on this and uh, i'm at a point which is quite different from this simplistic telling let's take putin and invading ukraine okay when putin invaded ukraine we understood that there are severe uh, competence and capability gaps in the russian army and in this simplistic conception of state capacity we'd be saying the war revealed failings of state capacity of the Russian army. I think that it is equally interesting and important to ask the question, how did Putin come to that decision to invade Ukraine? So there is a process by which those grand decisions are made. And it is equally interesting and important to put those decisions under the microscope. And you know what? There is a connection between the two. The fundamental reasons why Putin made a mistake in deciding to invade Ukraine are actually deeply connected to the fundamental reasons why the Russian army works badly. Okay, So I think that there is a bit of a first world syndrome in this field in the West where they take for granted the Western quality political system. The British political system does a reasonable job of aggregating the preferences of the population And uh, parliamentarians and the cabinet are reasonably responsive to the wishes of the population and they create decision processes that have enough checks and balances and rule of law. And so they arrive at a good list of objectives. But actually, everything that I've said in this sentence that works less well in Putin's Russia is actually the source of Putin's army's failure in invading Ukraine. So, my view on state capacity is a little different and I would equally put the decision of the government under the lens. That How did you make that decision? What are the checks and balances? So, the working of government that generates decisions of the government and then generates implementation projects of the mm. government, this entire machinery, how well does it work? And how can it be made to work better? This is the subject of state capacity.
0: So, you would not limit it? Essentially, to execution. Correct. But you would go before that. Correct. In order, so are you making kind of a inclusion of not just the logistics of how an idea is implemented, but how an idea is
1: formed in the formed
0: in the first place? Yeah,
1: because it turns out that these things are deeply connected. It is finally all about the same thing. It's about checks and balances, transparency, incentives, liberal democracy. Limiting power, dispersing power, it turns out the same issues bedevil both. And mm. a government that will fumble and flounder in the business of implementing an organization is also a government that will fumble and flounder in making bad decisions of what it is that we want to do. So you're more likely to come up with a harebrained idea like Putin to invade Ukraine when your checks and balances are weak and then that same lack of checks and balances generates failure by the army which is all revealed when you actually try to invade Ukraine.
0: But don't you think we need kind of a separate term, not to be lost in the typology but...
1: So it turns out that that separation is there at every level so you're thinking about the parliament what laws do you write? Then state capacity involves what is the process by which you write those laws. Mm -hmm. So it's not treating it as something pristine that Somehow, magically, some godlike parliament will write a good law. Okay? It is about being sceptical, saying, no, by default, we are all humans, we are all frail, okay? public choice theory interferes, we are all self-interested actors. And so the individuals that make up the parliament are self-interested actors. So what are the checks and balances? What are the processes? How can we put processes under the lens and ask ourselves, can that process be changed? How can we improve that process? So the moment you start getting a state capacity lens, you stop thinking about politics and ideology. You know, you you start downplaying the role of political economy and politics and ideology because those things are very far away. I mean, once in five years elections does very little in terms of shaping the actual working of the government. Actual working of government is all in the state capacity story. Saying, what are the people doing? What does a prime minister do? What does a minister do? What does the secretary do? What does the joint secretary do? What are the processes they employ? What are the checks and balances that shapes them? And how can those checks and balances be altered so as to generate better objectives and better implementation? So that's where you start getting fused. And at every level, there is objectives and then implementation, typically one layer below. Mm. So a secretary of government is establishing an objective, the joint secretary is implementing. The joint secretary of government is establishing an objective, a director of government is implementing. Okay, the board of SEBI is establishing an objective, the SEBI management is trying to enforce it, okay, and so on. So actually at every level, it's not like some god-like creature creates an objective that we have decided to invade Mozambique. And that decision is pristine. And now the only implementation question is how to conquer Mozambique. That's not how the world works. Actually at every step, there are these questions about who are we, what are we doing, what are our incentives. Public choice theory interferes. We Each of us would like to satisfy our own base objectives mm. and we have base motives. So how do you create checks and balances that will pull people out of their selfish, personal lust for power and money and a good night's rest? And how do you create a government that becomes an agent of the people? That mm. Our ultimate dream is that the people are the principal and government is their agent. Mm. And in India, when you pause for a moment, that just seems like strange language because we're all used mm-hmm. to government as a colonial ruler. We mm-hmm. think the government rules over us. No, Sarkar is above us and that's just exactly wrong. In a liberal democracy, we, the people, are the principal, and The government is our agent. And all these things are deeply connected to the state capacity perspective.
0: And these architects of state capacity, whoever they may be, who firstly, who are these people? And secondly, you said... Elections happen in five years, whatever politics has to happen it can happen then. But who are these players who A. have the long-term incentive to do that in the first place? Because I think this is a very well-established concept in terms of the fact that they are not strong or long-term enough incentives for the people involved in this process, process to do something about it. The politicians don't have an incentive, they have a five-year horizon.
1: It's a very good question. Who cares about state capacity and why would you want to do this differently? but in precisely the sense that I articulated just now, there are principal agent problems every step of the way. Okay, So the secretary of a department is whining that my joint secretaries get nothing done. So a conversation around why the joint secretary does not get things done and how can you improve checks and balances so that joint secretaries and the people below them will perform better gets a reception. Similarly, if you ask the leadership of the Department of Economic Affairs that shall we do things that make SEBI and RBI work better and they are interested. So they have that principal-agent relationship. So basically you've just got to always go to the principal and say, don't you think we should think about how to make your agent work better?
0: So basically There's appro- plenty of interest. approach it in a way in which you're by solving this problem also making life for someone better. Correct. Because yeah. that's the incentive that they will yeah. respond yeah.
1: And everywhere in the Indian state, there is dissatisfaction about each other. Okay? So mm. the legislature hates the executive. Mm. The legislature says the executive is an incompetent, corrupt, uh, stealer of the resources that we legislate and then they waste all that money or they steal all that money. Mm. The executive is unhappy about the judiciary. The judiciary knows all the egregious violations of rule of law that are done by the executive and so on. So many, many elements of the Indian state are seeing each other and understanding the other's foibles. We are all human. I will never understand my own foibles, okay? I will just fail in seeing my own weaknesses and my own failures, the ways in which I am unfair to you. Mm -hmm. It's human nature. But I will be good at understanding your foibles. So you've just got to create those situations where some part of the Indian state is curious about solving some other part of the Indian state.
0: All right. Uh, my second question as a follow-up to that would be, um, you've said it and explained it in a way in terms of economics is just about making decisions under constraints, right? So that's what just juxtaposed with state capacity. You have a limited state capacity. You don't have infinite state capacity. You can't do everything. So once you a know that you have limited state capacity, the second step is to prioritize certain things. In your words, as you said, you pick your battles as a state. I have two questions to that. Number one, do you think that the state A has a framework of thinking in terms of okay, there are only some things that I can do, and there are some things I can't do, or do you think there is this one thinking of acting like a god in terms of if I want to do something as a state, of course I can do anything as a state. So A, there is a like they are not able to understand the bounds and constraints that are placed on them and secondly in terms of when you are able to understand okay i have to pick my battles do you think that the indian state has been able to prioritize things and secondly thirdly has has it been able to prioritize better
1: this is this idea that we should view state capacity as something finite is uh, is novel i mean it's there in the art and science of economic policy and it's not widely known so unfortunately the answer is that, by and large, no. Okay, And there's a, a twin-edged uh, problem in this. In India, we the people have confused notions about the state. For us, the state is a mahibab. Hmm. The state is infinitely powerful. The state is an data The state will do anything. So we keep on making demands to the state that are completely unrealistic. So, you know, on one hand, everybody will criticize the Indian government saying it is so horrible. And then everybody is ready to go ask for more government intervention and a bigger role for the government in their lives. And this is just schizophrenic and inconsistent. So once you understand that the state works badly, then the logical implication is that, okay, very well, then maybe we should be doing less using this bad instrument. Okay. So I always come back to the foundation, which is the principal agent problem. I have hired a contractor. This person is fumbling on painting my house. Now, will I give the work of the electricals of the house also to the same contractor? I'll say, no, this guy is at his limit on trying to do painting. So, let me just increase the monitoring. Okay, reduce that person's discretion. Hold them by the short hairs and make sure that they paint the house. Okay, and don't believe a word of what they say. That is our response to incompetence by a painting contractor. Instead, in India, now we are ready to say, oh, you do my electricals also. Oh, you do my tiles also. Oh, you please find art. And decorate my walls also. And then we keep on whining that the state has failed, the state has failed, the state has failed. Okay, So I feel that the people need to reassess their worldview about the role of us as full human beings standing on our own feet and the role of the state as you know a small part of our lives who will do some few things that can only be done by the state and by nobody else. Mm. Instead of constantly demanding the government should do this and the government should do that. So that is part one of the story. And then when these wide array of demands from the people come to the political and bureaucratic leadership, I think that there is a lot of self-serving, uh, delusional thinking at the top. Because once you are powerful in India, you're only hearing good things. Right. So everybody likes to go to a powerful person and suck up to them. So people only get praise. Uh, In a 30-minute meeting, 27 minutes are devoted to praise and three minutes are devoted to what is the one favor that I want. So the more uh, you go up the hierarchy of the Indian state, the more you get this notion that, yeah, I can do anything. I'm infinitely powerful. And so you get the readiness for mission creep where you keep on launching more and more initiatives and all of them perform badly. So it would be much better to... Uh, narrow down to a small finite list of objectives do a few things, do them well we are 50 or 100 years behind the capabilities of the advanced economies and we should desperately be overcoming those barriers and overcoming those gaps but instead what is happening is we just have mission creep we are fragmenting our abilities and efforts across too many battles and ending up floundering on all of them
0: I want to i wanted to expand on what you said in terms of we as people need to reassess our priorities in terms of what are the demands that we are asking from the government because i think these demands are things like what number economic demands we want more jobs we want better standard of life
1: it is everything the sarkar is first port of call
0: that that's what i'm saying it's yeah. a either economic things or it's infrastructural things in terms of
1: it is all kinds of values things you have a problem like inequality you have a social problem like a caste system You have uh, a temple in Kerala where uh, uh, women are prevented from entering, whatever. Everything that happens in Indian society, we have lost the ability to look at each other and to solve problems as people, solve problems as a community. And we want to run to the government. Use your coercive force, solve my problem. And each one has a different passion about what is my problem. So I just want to take you back to a different age and... You will see how some people who are our elders and betters approached the same things. Um, Did you know that Gandhiji essentially never entered a temple? Okay. And the few times that he entered a temple was for the following. There would be a temple and the temple would not allow Harijans to enter. And Gandhiji would then walk around, talk to the elders, talk to the priests, persuade them with Shuddha. Hindu theological knowledge because Hinduism is actually better than that. Hinduism has great concepts and principles and philosophy. So, Hinduism is not a barbaric place where you want to oppress the Harijans. There are high ideas in Hinduism that the great people of our uh, Hindu reformation and freedom movement fully understood and uh, were able to use those arguments in talking to religious people in the language of the high philosophy of Hinduism and try to persuade them and try to persuade them. And at some point, he would resort to a little bit of coercion. But what coercion could a half-naked fakir muster? He would sit there in a dharna. He would start a fast. Okay, These were the techniques of the great man Mahatma Gandhi. And then the temple would be opened up. And it would be open to all the Harijans. And once in that first puja where everybody is welcome, Gandhiji would step into that temple. Apart from that, Gandhiji never went to a temple. Okay, That's the template for how we should be thinking. You are in this society. I am in this society. We should talk to each other. We should talk to our neighbors. We should solve problems as a society with each other. And we should recognize that many things are value judgments. And you know, leave them be that we should have a very high bar to bring coercive power into the picture. Mm -hmm. We in India are way too willing to ask for an airstrike from the government come solve this problem for me. And that applies equally for spending tax money. Tax money is treated as free in the common Indian discourse. I want the government to spend tax money on my pet priorities. And that's really not fair because tax money is actually obtained out of high levels of cruelty by the tax department. What the Indian tax officers are doing is a tax-terrorism operation all over the country. And that is a cost to the economy. It is really unpleasant. There is a high amount of cruelty in the Indian tax system. Everybody who asks to spend that money is supporting and partaking of that cruelty.
0: Um, But then, how do we solve the common action problem? problem? So, would you say that that is also part of the problem that we have to solve? Yes. Something that we used to solve and now we can't solve it anymore.
1: And that is what we have to solve. To become a good country, that is what we have to solve. And again, I'll go back to Gandhi. He always encouraged us that don't look to the state. Don't wait for the state to solve your problems. You started yourself. Okay. I am the center of my universe. In my freedom, in my agency are my better actions. Okay. I will start by not spitting on the street and so on. And then I start persuading you. And then we get to outward arcs of better behavior and good behavior, and we will disagree, okay? You may be opposed to gay marriage, I may support gay marriage, and we'll start arguing and talking. But let's not coerce each other, and let's not bring that coercive agent, namely the state, into our lives in a casual and reckless way.
0: Because when I hear this, my my question is naturally... It's, it's an ideal way to go about solving issues. It's what you said. The bar should be very high for when do you want to involve the coercive power of the state. But how do you build this in terms of... This is almost like if there's state capacity, this is the citizen capacity, citizenry capacity or whatever, in terms of the capacity within citizens to solve these issues and not go to the state to do all of that. Where do you begin? How do you develop that? And if you think that other states have been able to develop that. How have they been able to develop it? What can we learn from them?
1: I want to say two, three things that this is partly about philosophy. Okay, As I say, I'm going back to Gandhiji because he thought deeply about human beings. He was a philosopher and he thought deeply about human beings. He thought about humans being supplicant to the state as being something deeply damaging to your soul. So for him, it was very important that each of us have to find that freedom inside us and stand on our own two feet and stand for ourselves. And that was something that was the greatest good in his own, in and of itself. So that's one way to think about it. Now, uh, we have of course seen horrible coercive governments uh, like Nazi Germany or uh, Soviet Russia or Putin's Russia or the Chinese Communist Party. Where the state is overpowering and intrudes on everybody's life, and that's the other extreme. And, you know, in some ways, in India, we are headed a bit in that direction because the long arc of freedom in this country has just gone down. Okay, decade after decade, you start from the 1950s. It seems every decade, freedom in India has gone down, and various ways to think about economic freedom, political freedom. We've got. A, we are on a long arc of declining freedom, and then. How do you claw that back? And partly it's about the people waking up and saying, I am free. I am a human being and I will decide what I want to do with my life and I will not be a supplicant and I will not obey. But uh, it is also wise and practical to look at it through the state capacity lens what we talked about a moment ago that the Indian state has very low capabilities. So either if you are in a leadership role in the state or if you are the people, we just need to recognize that the state is swamped. It is doing too many things. It is fumbling and failing on most of them. So why would you load more problems upon the state? Because they'll fumble and fail on each of them. And what is worse, uh, there are things that only the state can do. Okay, So I'm not an anarchist. I do not advocate the complete removal of the state. I do advocate a great scaling down of the size and scope and interference by the state in our lives. But then you need a state. In the end, only the state can do military affairs, the judiciary, the criminal justice system. Okay, There are things that only the state can do. And by God, we need those done well. And how do we get to that? Through focus, by reducing the time and effort of the leadership and the resourcing of all the other funny things that they are doing. And get them to focus on a few things, and then we have a fifty or hundred year journey to capability. And now let me turn to your question: How did this happen in other countries? Okay, there is unfortunately only one great role model about how these things emerged from a vacuum. Okay, so imagine you start from a vacuum. You start from, you know, something like old India, ancient India, medieval India. Okay, you start from a vacuum, and how do how does high quality uh, state evolve out of that? And the answer is this happened in Europe. It only happened in Europe. And then others copied what happened in Europe. They didn't rebuild it from scratch. How did it happen in Europe? What happened in Europe? What happened in Europe was that we had a combination of geographical conditions where it was very difficult for any one ruler to rule a large geographical area. So the geography of Europe is such that it will always be many countries who will constantly be warring with each other. Okay, so it was an environment of co- a great competition between states. So the way uh, Emperor Ashok or Aurangzeb was able to control a large part of this country was not possible in Europe for reasons rooted in geography and variation in climate and all that. So you had a large number of states who were constantly fighting with each other and that generated several effects. First, to in order to wage war, you needed more Money in the hands of the state. How do you get that money? You get that money by running a good fiscal system which generates a tax GDP ratio multiplied by GDP. So you need a good GDP. So the countries that got to a good GDP and a good fiscal system got more money into the state. Okay, So that is the first point that if the state did stupid things then you lost GDP or you lost your tax GDP ratio or both. And the states that did the right things got to a high GDP and a high tax GDP ratio. So that's the first part. And the second part was the state needed the state capacity of taking that money and turning it into military capability, into combat power. That's a very complex management problem. How do you hire people? How do you run procurement? How do you buy weapons? Okay. How do you organize the army? How do you learn to do combined arms warfare and so on? So there was a great power rivalry in Europe between many, many countries. And... It doesn't have to be that people were geniuses and thought through all this and came up with the correct idea of what the state should be. It can even just be a Darwinian process. Mm. People did things at random. Some worked, some didn't work. And the state that, by dumb luck, got some pieces right, ended up conquering one that didn't. Mm. So there's nothing sacred about the boundaries of today's countries. Mm. The concept of a country keeps on evolving. Every 50, 100 years, the boundaries change completely. And uh, Europe was this lab where the countries competed. They were pitted into mortal combat. And there was an almost Darwinian process where many people tried many different things. Okay, So who knows? Maybe religion was actually the secret. Mm. Then Spain and Portugal would have succeeded. Okay? And the Vatican would have succeeded. Okay? But in fact, separation of church and state was the magic. And the countries with the least religion did the best. And so you get to Protestant uh, England and Protestant Germany becoming the most successful, and the South failing. Okay, so I'm not implying that Henry VIII thought about European, mm. uh, thought about British state capacity when uh, he wanted to divorce his wife and he converted Britain from being a Catholic country to a Protestant country. Mm. Okay, he had something very different on his mind. So I want to emphasize a Darwinian process that of course there were philosophers along the way, but there was also a lot of dumb luck along the way. And it so became that Britain and later Germany and France got that whole DNA, they got all the pieces right, of liberal democracy, of freedom that fosters a high GDP, of a small, light, sensible tax system that amasses about 10% of GDP, and then the state capabilities of how to build and run an army how to do procurement, how to do warfare, how to do combined arms warfare. And they learned all that. And then that was the emergence of the modern European state. So that's the journey through which the original invention of the package of modernity took place. And then there's a bunch of people elsewhere in the world who more or less grabbed those ideas. They took the best ideas, some better than others. So Argentina and uh, the United States of America had all the same menu of choice. And clearly the United States of America took some of the better ingredients from Europe whereas Argentina didn't. So Canada and Australia got some of this DNA out of colonial uh, history and uh, four countries started out poor as of 1945 and powered their way to becoming advanced economies today. They are Israel, Chile, South Korea and Taiwan. For all practical purposes, these today are advanced economies they're good democracies They understand concepts of freedom, rule of law. It's the same package everywhere. There is not a single advanced economy, successful country, which is Mm -hmm. not grounded in this machinery.
0: You mentioned as to how this has only happened once in Europe. A lot of Darwinian evolution has gone into it. Some amount of thinking, because they a lot of these countries individually and as a bloc have had strong intellectual discourses and yes. movements. Yes. But at the same time, you also mentioned that people who tried to copy it failed.
1: I mean, the fact that all this is on offer doesn't mean you'll take the right things. Yeah. Okay. Argentina uh, could have copied all the same things in the way the United States did. The United States actually thought deeply about all this and came up with a pretty good formulation that is the Constitution of the United States. So, these uh, things are not guaranteed, okay? Of all people, Jawaharlal Nehru led the First Amendment of the Constitution, which in one fell swoop shattered the fundamental right to property and the fundamental right to free speech. So, just the fact that there is this European tradition and the Enlightenment values does not take away our responsibility of thinking from first principles. It's not trivial. So, only four countries that were poor as of 1945 have made it big in the period after that. All the others have fumbled and Uh, floundered some because of bad reasons okay so you just become a dictatorship or there are people who have hated the west so these are very costly things and the other is because of an intellectual mistake that you didn't understand the secret sauce of the west adequately
0: and that's what like the way i'm approaching it is that uh, for sure that you need to have a deep understanding of what you're doing but this problem of imitation which Shruti and Tyler's paper talk about in terms of policy imitation, that yes. also doesn't work. Yes. So if we know that imitation, even if we try to imitate the best ideas, are not going to work. And
1: So imitation works at deep levels of value. So the enlightenment values work. Okay. So I think separation of church and state is pretty fundamental. Okay. Similarly, hmm. concepts of freedom is pretty fundamental. It would scale everywhere. But then when you get down to practical detail, how will I organize a, a traffic junction uh, here in Bombay? I have to think it from scratch. You have to understand the Bombay locale. Mm. How do the people behave? What are the magnitudes of fines? Will I have policemen? Will I have cameras? How will I organize the policemen? That you have to figure out from scratch. You can't say in Los Angeles, they organize traffic junctions like this. So I'll copy that here. That's dumb. Mm. Then you have to be deeply contextual. You have to figure it out from scratch. So I feel at the level of high ideas, a great deal of, The enlightenment values work in a pretty successful way all across the world. But in terms of policy detail, each country is different, each locale is different. Hey, India is the size of a continent. So what works in Maharashtra doesn't work. In Madhya Pradesh, you have to think from scratch. So that's the power of decentralization, that you need different, different people with their own energy looking around them, understanding their problems and solving them.
0: That brings me to this segment. Second question that I have in terms of thinking about structures and how do you shape governmental structures because I think the sense that I'm getting from you is that A. Copying deep philosophical ideas work because ideas more or less structure human beings and…
1: Yeah, I want to be careful around the word copying but just that these are these are more universal. Mm. So like Newton's laws are universal, like that enlightenment values are pretty universal. That's the sense in which yeah. we're all human beings so these are some basics. Across thousands of years, across all kinds of places, there are some fundamental values that uh, are pretty universal.
0: In terms of no matter what type of civilization, what type of country you are, everybody is going to benefit with equality being a fundamental, say, um, cornerstone. Mm,
1: I'm, no, I'm not ready to sign on to equality.
0: Okay, what are you ready to sign on to? Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. All right. So let's just take freedom for that matter.
1: Yeah.
0: Um... That's the sense that, okay, these are some things that not, we're not copying but we're just saying that that emulation works well for everyone because yeah. these are some things that are fundamental, right? But secondly, in terms of that that problem with imitation that comes, that okay, you can't imitate policies. You yeah. can imitate um, these deep values. But then, what...
1: Again, I, I'm uncomfortable with the word imitate. You need to understand these things, first. and then,
0: you have to look around
1: the world and look in your own society in your own landscape in your own village, and then start thinking, okay, I am here, I am a sentient being, I have agency, what do I do next? So, the the line from ideas and values to action is personal, and each person is different, and right. each locale is different.
0: And that brings me to my question in terms of, so there is a certain amount of thinking about the state structure in terms of how it impacts personal freedoms and a lot of it is of course related to law and how the constitution um, regiments and structuralizes um, your freedom but my question is that a within the state structure how do you m- make sure that the incentive to better itself is present and secondly. Do we want to look at state structures as something that need to always evolve over time? Or do you think that after a point in time, there is a combination that you get right and you then want to preserve it and therefore set structures that make it harder for you to change?
1: So like in the American constitution, the right to bear arms, you know, has not stood the test of time. And then do you really want to code these things forever? The French gather their intellectuals together every 50, 100 years and write a brand new constitution. Is there merit in that? I worry about the quality and the capability of the constituent assembly. And, you know, would we be able to recreate wonderful human beings like that mm. again? Maybe in 50 years, maybe in 100 years. Okay. At present, it doesn't seem wise to tinker too much with that. The Indian constitution has this fatal problem of way too many amendments of the constitution but in the end I am actually quite pleased at the outcome where there's a basic structure which is inviolable and it is pretty small there's a small core which is pretty inviolable and I think that's a good place to be and then the rest can evolve over the years maybe a little too easily but that separation of core periphery was a good solution that there is a core that is absolutely inviolable. Of course, the British have a great system. They have an unwritten constitution. And uh, they argue about what is the constitution every day. And as the years evolve, they're willing to keep shifting that analog tone of their constitution. They don't try to write it in black and white and they keep arguing with each other about what is the constitution. So at the level of the constitution, I think that it would be nice if there was a single code that would work for thousands of years. But... When you look at the federalist papers and the people in that project, I don't think you could improve on those people. They were just wonderful, they are amazing people. And they clearly got some things a bit wrong. So I feel we should not be so arrogant and so proud to think that anybody is capable of writing a document that will last for thousands of years. We should have some give. Now when you come into the detail of government, uh, the laws are supposed to be amended all the time by the parliament. The institutional apparatus of the country needs to change greatly across economic growth. My thumb rule is that across every doubling of GDP or in every organization across a doubling of the revenues of an organization, you require a pretty deep rethink Mm. about what you are doing. So India was once a dirt poor country. We're not that. We're at early stages of middle income today. And so the needs of the economy are different and the problems that we face are different. And I feel all too often we are surrounded by ossified institutions that were designed for a different world. And so then we've got to be willing to constantly rethink those. Um, there is a very different view of all this, which will again emphasize uh, the parsimony of uh, state intervention. So there's a great uh, quotation from Adam Smith, where he says something like, "The natural state of human society is that you'll get growth, you'll get progress. You don't. It is the natural state of human beings." to come together, to look around them, to solve problems. And as they solve problems, you start getting growth and you get uh, prosperity and you make the world better. And in that, he has a phrase in this and I quote, he says, all you need for this is a tolerable level of justice. (laughs) So he doesn't say you need a great level of justice. You just, don't be barbaric, don't be cruel, don't have an oppressive state that interferes in the lives of people. Don't have a state that tells people not to do things. So, you need freedom and you need a little bit of a half-decent justice system and that will be enough to unleash growth. So my standards for what the state has to be in order to unleash growth are quite low. Okay, The genius of India is in the people. It's in you and me and the firms and the artists and the writers and the movie makers. It's not in the state. The state is doing all it can, it can today to prevent The genius of the Indian elite from turning into invention, innovation, adaptation, expansion, complexity, firms, organization. So, I don't think that the state creates conditions for growth. The people have the genius and the energy that creates growth. The Indian state holds the country back. And our job is to whittle down on the amount of state intervention and the extent to which the Indian state says no to all kinds of things.
0: Yes. So, yeah, sorry.
1: Expanding freedom would get a lot done. Even under conditions of low state capacity. The phrase I am searching for is a tolerable level of justice. So you don't need a great police. You don't need a great SEBI. You just need them to be okay. So they need to make progress. But they don't need to rise to first world. They just need to get better than where they are. Yes,
0: yeah,
1: A little more justice would help.
0: <laughs> Previously you used this phrase... Um, state coercion and private sector disenchantment. So do you think that's like that describes India?
1: Yeah, that, that particularly describes the period after 2011. So there was a moment in India's history roughly 1992, 1991 to 2011, when I think that in the Indian elite, there was a sense that the Indian state is not great, that many things are wrong, but we're getting better. And I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're making things better. And every now and then my life, my business will stumble on some landmines and it will go bad. But I will have recourse. I'll be able to go talk to officials. I'll be able to talk to politicians. And they will either solve my problem in the particular or they'll even make a little bit of progress on the broader frameworks. Okay. So there was that moment from 91 to 2011 where the leadership and the sense of progress was strong enough. So I'm thinking of Narasimha Rao and Vajpayee and Manmohan saying that there was a world where the Indian elite was willing to give the state the benefit of the doubt and by 2011 that had reached its high point and had actually turned around. So from 2011 onwards we've had a long bad period in terms of private investment and we see a lot of the key individuals of India who are standing back from the fray who are not committing themselves in terms of money, in terms of emotional intensity, in terms of where their children live and uh, not digging in to build organizations and participate in the Indian Growth Project.
0: That leads me to this one question of where is this dissonance coming from? And what I mean is that every now and then you hear information and news about how the private sector in India is actually growing in terms of apparently ease of doing business rankings we climb every year then there is so much venture money flowing around the whole narrative of entrepreneurship being at an all-time high everybody wants to start something and on the other hand there is the narrative as you're saying that it actually is getting harder as private people to do things because the state is overreaching and trying to regulate more and more so what is happening there where is why is there a resonance?
1: So as an example, I was part of the, I was a member of the Bankruptcy Legislative Reforms Committee, which drafted the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code. Susan was the leader of the team that drafted the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code. And when that code was enacted, India got some ranks, got some points in this uh, ease of doing business. But by all accounts, the follow through was not so great. And the working of the bankruptcy code is weak. Okay, So it's not in great shape. And. Many uh, aggrieved creditors in India would rationally choose to not approach the NCLT with a bankruptcy matter because the bankruptcy code doesn't work so well. So this glass is less full than meets the eye. Um, There is indeed a wonderful new world of venture capital and private equity where a lot more people are able to get capital even if they are not rich. So you don't have to come from a rich family to be an entrepreneur in India today and make no mistake about it that is absolutely wonderful and that is great but the magnitudes are small okay so all the capital in the startup world all the employment of the startup world it's it's just you know small change compared to the size of the country so i think the economic materiality of this stuff is way overstated so you know if you the, the indian gdp is like 3 trillion dollars is 240 lakh crore rupees okay so suppose you were an optimist and you think that uh, the con- in the country there is one new unicorn uh, getting an IPO listing every month which is not true but let's just play that so there's one new 8000 crore company getting a listing every month then the 12 eights are 96 that's 1 lakh crore whereas and that's a stock it's not a flow whereas GDP is a flow of something like uh, 240 lakh crore rupees in one year so even if you were at the level of one unicorn a month, which is where we are not, it's one of a stock being created against a flow of 240. Okay, So the numbers are small. If you count the total employment, you count the total footprint. Similarly, uh, if everything was so great in terms of the private equity and the venture flows and the PLI flows and all that, it should have showed up in the FDI data. It hasn't. FDI has been flat for a long time. Okay, So once again, it is absolutely great for the country that there are more startups and there is more private equity, but the numbers are not material as of yet.
0: All right. Um, this is one another phrase that you've used that I want you to unpack. Um, you say that there's a difference between uh, this people being libertarian by choice and libertarian by necessity. So it's stolen
1: from Kaushik Basu. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he wrote it. We. When we were talking once, this is what he said. So he said something like, if you were in Sweden, where the state works very well, you could choose to be a big state interventionist. And a lot of good things will get done. And I appreciate and admire the wonders of the Swedish state. Okay, So I'm not dogmatic about it. I am a little bit bothered by it. I'm more than a little bit bothered by it. But I appreciate that when the Swedish state decides that the people shall be vaccinated, Everything works out pretty well. okay. And uh, in India, the constant problem you have to come up against is state failure. That Whatever the Indian state tries, works out pretty badly. So Kaushik Basu said that there is libertarianism of necessity and there is libertarianism of choice. Libertarianism of choice is where you face a country where the state works, but you have a principled insistence on human freedom and you say that the state should not intervene in ABCD, walks of life and in the human sphere in the private sphere in the personal sphere so you will reject uh, monitoring surveillance and control of human beings by the state okay so this is libertarianism of choice that even though you live in a country where many things work well and there are checks and balances there is rule of law you will still insist as a moral principle that the human imagination is too important and when you bring the state into it there's a deadening effect. And state control is bad for the soul. As opposed to libertarianism of necessity. That You're in India, this Indian state fails at whatever it does. So like really, what is the mandate you would like to ask of the Indian state? You should be rethinking that and asking for a very few things from the Indian state. So we discussed it earlier today that narrowing the mandate of the state to a small core of really important things and then get on that long European journey that I described to you. That it took 100 years to get basic done. So in the hands of South Korea, Chile, Israel, uh, Taiwan, it took 50 years, 80 years. Okay, So these are countries who started from scratch in about 1945, in the case of Taiwan, 1949. And then you know sifted through the package of global knowledge. And in about 50, 70 years, built out to a first world country. Okay, so under those conditions it takes 50-70 years.
0: In terms of what you said about the state working well, then it should be allowed to work if you're not principally opposed to say minimal government and everything, because you know that something's gonna get done. I wanna come back to India in terms of something that you had said about the inability of the Indian state apparatus at any level for that matter to not have a comprehensive, not even comprehensive, I think, any workable theory as to what am I doing as the instrument of the state or what is happening in terms of the state trying to do or execute something. You said that it's embarrassing the lack of an intellectual framework. In that sense, do you think that the these instrumentalities of the state, these executioners of the state are aware of the cost of them making a mistake, of the cost that they incur on people, on the state, on the people, when they don't have this framework in the first place. No, generally
1: most civil servants are quite happy about themselves. They have self-esteem. Remember, everybody praises them every day. So, they are surrounded by friends and family who say, oh sir, you are so great. So, very few civil servants have the intellectual capacity to understand the limitations
0: of the Indian state. And therefore, they don't think about that, okay, if I don't do it in the most right way, I can think the unintended consequences are going to be really bad. They are not thinking about it.
1: So by and large, uh, very few uh, personnel of the Indian state. So uh, the state is defined as the community that achieves and maintains a monopoly on physical violence in a given territory. And so it includes politicians, officials, uh, coercive arms of the state, all that. And uh, by and large, I think we are at the early stages of the journey to freedom.
0: Because this is something that worries me in terms of... This is also like the high X coordination problem in terms of... You have this big government or an organization. You have different people to respond to different incentives. But even if, for example, at the head of the state, tomorrow or day after, you have one administrator. And this doesn't have to be at the topmost level. For example, I am an Indian administrator. There are 10 people below me. And I am handling this one water department in, say, one village in madhya pradesh but i have read all of that and i have clear fundamental thinking of of okay public policy i've read through all the books and everything i have a fundamental philosophy of okay i want to get these things right but even at that point in time because of the coordination problem of the fact that not only do you have to work with other people horizontally vertically above and vertically below how do you manage to make sure that you are able to achieve those outcomes when the variables that you have to play with are not, are not the same as you?
1: So You're absolutely correct. There is a lack of policy coherence in the absence of strategy. Okay, And I just want to dwell on the words strategy and tactics because this is at the core of the problem. Uh, by and large, you know, India is a poor country, is an underdeveloped country. And uh, there's very low intellectual capacity, so there's very little strategy, and this is true across government or private sector. So most private business people will always revere execution and revile strategy, okay? Because you know you're a practitioner, you're doing the same thing over and over for 50 years of your life, and that's what you know how to do. So you know how to roll up your sleeves and get some execution, whereas strategy is thinking. It's not something that people know, most people know how to do. So you're back to school and college and all that. So strategy is a very intellectual project and there's low capabilities in strategy and by and large power is in the hands of the execution people. So all over the Indian landscape, we find organizations that live in a very short-term horizon, that live day-to-day, that tactically try to seek some advantage here and there and do very little in terms of long-term thinking, long-range planning. I find military terminology and definitions to be quite useful because the word strategy is filled with a lot of rubbish. So in the world of military affairs, there are clear terms. There are three layers. There is tactics, and then operations, and then strategy, okay? So tactics pertains to low amount of force, space, and time. Okay. So it's a low amount of force, a low amount of space, a low amount of time. That's called tactics. Then a medium amount of space and a medium amount of force and a medium amount of time. That's called operations. And high amounts of force, high amounts of space, high amounts of time. That's strategy. And winning wars is centrally and crucially about strategy. You can't just sit at a hill and shoot a machine gun and win a war. You need strategy. So what is the big idea? What is the grand plan? What are we doing? And how do we argue about high amounts of force, high amounts of space, high amounts of time? And then, once you have that overarching concept, then the operations has to fit within the strategy. And the tactics has to fit within the operation. And then the entire thing works as a coherent whole. And all this is largely absent in India today. So I think of it as a part of the learning journey that you know, In many ways, I feel that there was greater intellectual capacity in India 100 years ago and 75 years ago. When you what look at happened? The, many things went wrong and it's an interesting debate. But by and large, the experiment with socialism was a bit of a catastrophe. It really, it destroyed the intellectual community, it destroyed institutions. And so when you look at the constituent assembly debates, you just wonder, where are those people? It's like, what amazing people? What capability what sophistication what kind of arguments <clears throat> being brought to the table and yeah. you know diverse disagreeing perspectives being brought together in the room i can't imagine that in india today but i digress so <laughs> uh, i think that they're on a journey and what you say is absolutely correct about the lack of policy coherence and the lack of a framework but that is indeed part of the journey so why does the indian state fail this is part of the story that Power is in the hands of execution people, and then for them, every day is an exercise of power of firefighting. You play on one week horizons, you play for headlines, then you're not actually able to solve problems.
0: So then, as as I was saying, it's a lot about mindset. In
1: yeah. um, um, can I can I please uh, complain about IIT people? Uh, the Indian state is filled with people who think that building an app and doing some IT is a solution to deep complex social problems, and that's just so superficial. It's almost laughable.
0: But you've also said that I, you think that Aadhaar gets more criticism than it deserves. So
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a complex story. But I'm I'm just saying so many places in the Indian state are now trigger happy that you want to build a system, they want to build an app. So they think that the lack of intellectual framework is fine because actually all I'm doing is I'm building a software system.
0: It's, it's what I think. There's a famous phrase in terms of like digitizing a broken thing religiously to a broken digitized yeah.
1: thing. And also, if all I have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. So, you know, we've created a whole STEM world where people have solved calculus problems and gone mm. through the UPSC. And then, social science is so hard. Humanities is so hard. But I don't care because actually, I'm a software guy.
0: Going back to what you were saying in terms of it's all a problem about mindset in terms of okay even if some people have a mindset of minimal government etc and they're in the government mm-hmm. they can't do a lot of stuff they can't change a lot of things and that a lot of these people is said most of these administrators whether they'll be IAS or other people or politicians they just don't have that mindset right this brings me to what Harsi Mistri had said to you at some point in time which is that you're not allowed to complain about mindsets.
1: I was about to say to you that Hmm. I object that you use the word mindset. (laughs)
0: Yeah so at that point in time then if you can't complain about how these people were essential to how say you would want the Indian state to work are thinking about something in a specific way and if say you are not allowed to complain about it then what do you do what 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 complaining do you do and what do you solve for? We focus
1: on solutions so for example the reserve bank of india was a messy organization lacking objectives lacking accountability okay and yes of course that messy environment created a bad mindset in many of the employees but the journey lay not in whining about the mindset but in a practical tangible solution which is inflation targeting so today the Reserve Bank of India has accountability that has created a new set of feedback loops. When inflation in India goes above or below 4%, the Reserve Bank of India gets inundated in criticisms and you have failed. And that keeps them honest. So they've got a whole set of checks and balances that reshapes their behavior. That is the answer. So it's a positive journey of not complaining about the people. Mm. Okay, All of us are equally good or equally bad. The question is what are the incentives that we are placed under? So, when you reshape the incentives, the capabilities of the
0: people and the organization change. Yeah, this this brings me to my second half of my question, which is that, okay, A, you don't need to complain that much, you focus on solutions. Second is the second part of what Percy had said. Yeah, but
1: solutions that actually go to the deeper fundamentals of incentives and the role of the state and so on. So, you don't ask RBI to do 16 things. You ask RBI to do one thing, inflation targeting, okay? So linked to the previous discussion. And you don't come up with an app. Okay, So it's not about an IT system that will somehow make monetary policy work better. You don't do a monetary policy stack. Okay, You actually go to the fundamentals. That What is the purpose of money creation in a society? The answer is to deliver on an inflation target. So you get to that core. and You put it in a law. That is progress.
0: And that reminds me of what you had said. This one time you were in a room full of bureaucrats and they were discussing that they are going to set an inf- like an export target Um, and then you will how can you set an export target because (laughs) I mean
1: what India exports has nothing to do with you as long as you get out of the way like don't have customs duties don't have barriers to movement of money across the border don't prevent the FDI other than a tolerable level of justice so India's greatness is in that elite there are people in this country who have capability and hunger and will go build stuff and do amazing things if only the Indian state will let them.
0: The second part of my question was that Percy had said to you, don't complain on mindsets, change the rules, the mindsets will change. Yes. What are the rules that you're going to change to change the mindsets within those people?
1: I just gave you an example. Okay. So in field after field after field, we've got to think: what is that bureaucratic formation? Does it even need to exist? You yeah. know? So should you be shutting down a whole array of interventions? And then can we establish clear objectives? Can we establish the checks and balances so that they will have their uh, nose in the till and deliver on those narrow objectives? Sharp, precise drafting of laws. Okay, So you've you've been a law student, you understand expansive drafting of laws versus sharp drafting of laws. This is a singularly important project. So uh, imagine the objectives of an organization like SEBI where there's objective A, B, C, D, and then in the end, it says any other objective as determined by the post. Hmm. Then you've given it all away. Then suddenly they can do anything. They can they can go build a university claiming that's my objective. Bracket, they did. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um then my couple like towards the end, I have a couple of final questions in terms of this is another thing that you discuss quite a lot in your conversations um, and podcast podcast interviews with people is how the Indian people have come to be such good faith for the government in terms of they think, okay, the government, as we discussed before, the government will come and solve, solve this problem for me. The government, the government is
1: government. my bab. The government will wipe every tear. Yeah. Every unhappiness of mine shall be turned into a Twitter complaint to some handle called government that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> we should start that handle, right? Sarkar, at Sarkar. <laughs> <laughs> Give me all your complaints. I am your God.
0: <laughs> so that way... um. You have this idea as an Indian, like I mean, I will use the word subject, not a citizen, because this understanding of you being yes. a citizen is very scarce. Yes. Um. And so it's
1: a two-way street, that the oppressor is engaging in an illegitimate extent of control and intervention and non-rule of law, and the subject is illegit is accepting all that. So that's that's a dysfunctional marriage of India.
0: Yeah. So in that sense, a how. D- I have a sense of uh, in terms of how did we come here. But in terms of that like how now that we know that for a fact that most majority of Indian population will look up to the government to solve problems but secondly also have this good faith towards the government not be critical to the government not sorry not government the state in itself not be critical towards the state not ask for more rights. This is something that I like to say that like the Indian citizen does not think in the vocabulary of of rights.
1: So one of the biggest so I, I, I don't want to push the word rights because in India it has turned into all kinds of right to education and all that stuff. The core is public choice theory. The, the single biggest missing piece in the worldview of the people of the freedom movement, okay? Nehru, Patel, Rajkopalachari, you know, that entire crew. The m- missing brick in their wall was public choice theory. The idea that the state is a community that is composed of self-interested actors. They're not saints. They're not like you. Okay. So Nehru's core mistake was that he thought there was a little bit of his nobility in every future civil servant of India. And that's just like way wrong. So what we need today is a great dose of public choice theory in, un- in just simple uh, understanding that the state is composed of self-interested actors. They're pursuing their own... Power, their own wealth, their own peace of mind and a good night's sleep. And as long as we understand that much, then we will have more reasonable expectations both around what they're capable of and around the kind of checks and balances required. That y- there will be people who will say, why did you need to write a law that says that RBI has an inflation objective? No, excuse me, you did. Okay, If you leave that vacuum, then RBI will do all kinds of things. Okay? It needs an explicit objective written into the law and make it unpleasant when they fail on that objective. Uh, there was a clause in the law that RBI would write a letter to the Ministry of Finance explaining the reasons for their failure and describing remedial actions. And unfortunately, there was one additional clause that was missing which is that that letter should be released into the public domain it was kind of left as obvious but no the Minister of Finance did not release that letter into the public domain so that's a failure of public choice theory the authors of the law did not understand public choice theory it should be explicitly written that that letter by RBI apologizing for its mistakes diagnosing its mistakes and showing remedial actions should be released to the public that's what creates checks and balances
0: that brings me to basically my final question in terms of state capacity and how you look at the state. Are you optimistic about the Indian state and about India or do you get depressed at times about what is happening?
1: On the long arc of history, I am very optimistic about India. Something is right about this place. Something is right about this culture. Okay, This is a country of Ramanujan and Tagore and Gandhiji under dirt poor conditions, under oppressive rule. Okay, so it was precocious. There was no reason for a country where at 1947 women's literacy was 6%. Okay, There was no reason in such a backward, such a poor country to expect a Rabindranath Tagore or a Ramanujan or a Gandhiji or a Nehru. There's some magic in this culture. And I respect and admire it. And similarly, there is a precocious Indian elite. Okay, so imagine the software revolution. The same opportunities were there everywhere in the world. There was an elite in India that was able to jump and take those opportunities and build an amazing software industry by world standards. Okay, so there is an elite capability here that is really remarkable. And our job is to nurture it and to create conditions where this can play out in its best extent. So in the long run, I'm very optimistic about how this place works out. There is something beautiful and good here.
0: But do you think in the first order of business is to minimize the role of the state?
1: For all of us to learn to think and talk to each other and build community, it's analogous to the freedom movement. If you went 100 years ago, the average per Joe was just getting on with their life and saying, fight with the British, you and whose army? <laughs> okay, so how is this guy in a loincloth going to take on the mighty British empire? Okay, so that's where we are. That the Indian state seems impossibly strong and it is an oppressing force. And uh, we the people have very limited freedom. There is less rule of law today than there was a hundred years ago. Okay, it is more dangerous to be jailed by the Indian government today than it was to be jailed by the British government. Yeah, That's where we are. We are where we are. Let's understand that. And then let's build from there. I think a lot can be done.
0: There's this is phrased by, um, I think it, it's used by Patrick Collison, who's the CEO at Stripe, as a fintech company in the US, that um, they describe their culture as micro pessimists and macro optimists. Yeah. So I think something similar.
1: Yeah. So you know we've got to coldly understand the difficulties that we face today. We should not have illusions, and then we've got to find the en- emotional energy, and the endurance to keep chipping away in quite small ways over long periods of time. It's a journey of ideas. Okay. We have to build knowledge. We have to build those documents. We have to build the community through which our knowledge and our understanding will improve and the rest is unpredictable and that's okay, that's, that's life. I think we've got an unusually good shot at building a great
0: country. I just have a couple more questions with respect to how you function as a unit of knowledge. So, um, I would assume that you read a lot. I mean, it's a necessary prerequisite to be functioning at that level. Yeah. So, um, how do you consume knowledge? put it as simply as that.
1: Uh, knowledge management machinery procedures
0: Not entirely that but in terms of what what are you thinking if you wake up every day are you going to are you going through motions that you've developed for yourself? Sure. Or? yeah so
1: uh, a lot of people have an incentive particularly early in their lives to specialize okay I think that the uh, pressure to specialize is overrated and is rooted in our insecurity, okay? So when we are young, we are all uh, filled with self-loathing, okay? The Radiohead song, Creep, comes to mind, and uh, we want to rapidly rush and make a mark and earn some respect. So the path to respect is to specialize and know a little bit, and the labor market wants specializations. You're supposed to know something well. Okay, so that's how we start. But actually, the world is complicated and uh, actually you need breadth. You need to know many things and you need to be able to synthesize. So the word, understanding the world and uh, uh, being able to make sense of what is happening is actually a interdisciplinary story. By the way, that's the X in XKDR mm-hmm. forum. So you need to know many things. Now, once you say, I want to know many things, then the burden on the learning is brutal because we are surrounded by not one uh, hose pipe of knowledge but hundreds of host pipes of knowledge so I try to read eclect- eclectically in many many fields I try to have uh, one friend after another in one field at a time and they become my sparring partner in that field so there will be one person where I will generally go with every new idea, every new conjecture every reading in a certain subject and then you know try to do the Uh, brainstorming and the research discourse so as to be able to keep up knowledge in multiple fields. Uh, I use an RSS feed reader as a way to stay organized and stay controlled. Um, I read on an iPad where there is nothing installed so there are no interruptions. Mm -hmm. So on that iPad, there's no Gmail, there's no notifications, nothing. I'm just, I email EPUB and PDF files to myself and when I'm reading on the iPad, I'm reading nothing else. Uh, I... Uh, systematically store uh, URLs of materials that are in a field across many, many fields so that when the day will come and I'm ready to deep dive into something, I've got my neatly ordered collection I need to study this. So there'll be like a resources directory where there's a bunch of PDFs and then I'm super efficient that I'm two, three hours I'm able to read a large amount of material and I get into that field as and when a situation arises where I'm deep diving um, into something. So, These are some of my tricks. Uh, A great element of reading, of knowledge building is writing. Mm. So I write. I write a fair bit. And each writing project is that supreme pressure and focus where I have complete intensity in that one thing that I'm writing. And that's a time both where I read a lot because I want to be sure I'm doing that well. And also I find that the act of creation is at the writing quite often. Sometimes Mm. the act of creation is something completely unrelated where some idea strikes me and then I kind of file it away either in my head or on my phone and then later on I'll turn it into a written product. But very often the act of writing drives the thinking. So one becomes better in the idea by the writing and many, many pieces get invented while writing. So some amount of invention happens offline, but a lot of the invention happens while writing. That Once the journey starts, then many new ideas and insights and
0: problem-solving happens. What is your decision-making framework?
1: You? Um, I try one central piece is the triaging. I told you that in building knowledge, you have to have a high creative process where you invent many things and then you have to ruthlessly triage as you come to a few things where you will commit yourself to them. Um, I do the triaging in a very undisciplined way basically, I chase whatever feels like fun. And for a long time, I used to beat myself up thinking I'm so undisciplined. Then I understood that my nose on what is interesting is actually my triaging That there are many things I know that, yeah, this can be done. It's a hard-working, tedious project. But the answer is a little obvious and the cost-benefit ratio of how much effort it will take to do that research project and the insight that will be obtained will be pretty low. Okay, so a lot of like double quotes good journal publications fall in that category that you know by the time you've described a few sentences of it you pretty much know what it's going to be and the rest is all just pleasing the editor and the referee and i find that a waste of life i'm always after the real novelty where there are fundamental questions being asked I and mean, i yearn for a project that will change my view of the world so what is really great is to find a research question where i don't know which way it will turn and in the art of exp- in the act of exploration it will change my mind. uh, Is it this or is it that? Whereas if I feel sure I know what's going on, then why bother? So, the triaging is around the curiosity. What would be fun? What's a nice place where I'll discover something and it'll be an interesting project? And so, I now have the fancy name for it which is I say I'm triaging. Actually, Mm -hmm. I just wake up every morning and do whatever feels like the coolest thing that I feel like doing.
0: And you think that has held you in good stead throughout your life? Absolutely,
1: yeah. So, the the whole machinery of credentialism and the corporate ladder uh, is the modern industrialized machine of knowledge making, which in some ways loses something fundamental. Actually, knowledge is too important to be turned into a machine.
0: Yeah, because of because that you talked about knowledge. This is this was not supposed to be asked here. This um, I'm just thinking about it now. Do you think as a knowledge center, Bombay is better than Delhi? Um.
1: In some ways, yes. So Delhi is in uh, weaker shape today than it was a long time ago. So there was a time when Delhi was the dominant place in India in terms of the intellectual community. Today, Bangalore is very strong. Bombay is very strong. So the world is changing quite substantially.
0: And you would say that's because of the priorities of the people in those areas and how they've changed?
1: Yeah, so again, it comes back to the machinery of the institutions and the incentives and the arrangement of power and resourcing, all those things.
0: Mm. Um, What is your idea of a good life? I have a sense, but what do you think a good life is? Uh,
1: um, I'm not a great writer, but I have always been struck by Hemingway saying that a good day is one in which you get to write one good line. So I, I, I have an inordinate and childish joy of writing I enjoy the craft of writing I love writing a good line so the the precision the wisdom the color of a good line is something that matters greatly to me Um, it would be good to invent things so at heart I like the creative process most of my creativity is on this range of little more stem little less stem meaning I'm happy writing code. I'm happy coming up with an idea in statistics. I'm happy coming up with an idea in economics. And I'm happy in the more humanities and social science of figuring out the world, coming up with crazy conjectures, thinking deeply about them, trying to uh, explore the world and understand what are the big problems and how do we understand them.
0: What is your advice to young people who are curious anyone who wanted to do something, want to solve some problems, who are Motivated by however you described describe, you would want the students in your ideal class to be. What, what advice would you give to them?
1: Uh, I'd say two things. One is that the world that's pulled down in front of your eyes is the credentialism and the corporate ladder. And that's just deeply harmful. That if you start thinking that I want to go to a high-ranked university, you're in deep trouble. Because knowledge is not about rank. And the people who are chasing the rank in a performative display that I'm smarter than you because I'm in a higher university than you or I'm in a higher journal than you, then that's just deeply destructive. Then you're climbing the corporate ladder and you've lost connection with your heart. So that would be my idea number two. And idea number two, that's my idea number one. And my idea number two is that there will be life trade-offs. That, you know, the world of knowledge, in my opinion, is a beautiful world. But it is costly and difficult in its own way. That You will have many trials and tribulations. So, the, in exchange for leading a good life, you will experience many difficulties. And that's just part of the package. You can't have everything.
0: And my last question would be, if you were to go back in time, what's the advice you'd give to an 18-year-old? Uh,
1: when I was finishing up at IIT Bombay, uh, Kirit Parikh said to me, come for some years an apprentice with me. Okay. And that was the best advice in the world. And I was a fool and I was glamorized by getting a scholarship to go to attend PhD in the United States. And I said, no.
0: You would just say, do it.
1: I just think back of that and I think, how stupid was I?
0: Because labs are the place where near real yeah. knowledge And it. Kirit Parekh is a great
1: man. He's a wise person. I just would have learned so much from him. I, I just made a mistake.
0: That It takes courage to <laughs> accept that you made a mistake. Yeah. Um, it's been great, Ajay. Uh, I have got to learn so much speaking to you. And again, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thanks, Divyanshu. Always happy to talk.